Our scripture passage this morning is taken from the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 22. Uh, we will be looking this morning at verses 7 through 20. And as I read this passage this morning, you may feel as if uh, we sort of end abruptly. That is because we will end abruptly. Uh, verse 20 is in the middle of a statement that Jesus is making. And this morning we're simply going to f- focus on the first part of that statement. He'll continue in verses 21 and 22. We'll look at those uh, statements next Sunday, Lord willing. But the, for this morning, Luke chapter 22... Verses 1 through 20, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you did not bring your own Bible, you may use one of the Pew Bibles. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the Black Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, But you may follow along in any faithful English translation you like. Let's read the word of the Lord now. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is indeed... The word of the Lord, it is eternal, it is inspired, it is authoritative, it is inerrant and infallible, it is sufficient for us. Now since Sunday, March 8th, since Sunday, March 8th, we have been studying in Luke's Gospel the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. Three months we have been focusing on one week in Christ's life. And throughout those last three months, we see Luke's timeline. It has been narrowing down more and more and focusing more and more upon the looming cross. We've gone from the last full week of Christ's earthly life to the last few days of his earthly life to last Sunday, uh, the last day of his earthly life, and now in our passage this morning, the last few hours of his earthly life and ministry. And it should not be lost on us, beloved, that the final hours of Christ's earthly life are spent in deep-seated communion with his disciples, celebrating the sacramental feast of the Passover in what is commonly called the Upper Room. Many of you know 
the Apostle John, in his Gospel, gives us a much more detailed look at these last few hours of the life of Jesus Christ in his Gospel. John gives us five full chapters of insight into what happened in the upper room. Luke, on the other hand, gives us maybe a half a chapter, but it's a half chapter which is packed full of significance. It is packed full of things for us to study and strive to understand deeply and apply to our lives. So this morning, we will look at this text. We're going to look at this text in three different sections in an attempt at understanding on a more meaningful level the events which took place in the upper room. And our text does open up with Jesus and the disciples making preparation for the Passover feast, verses 7 through 13. I do want to point out a few things for us to consider in these opening verses, because I think maybe our tendency is, as we read a, a, a portion of Luke's gospel that we know is full of significance, I think our tendency might be to simply brush past verses 7 through 13 and sort of jump right into the upper room and the celebration of the Passover. But there are important things, really two important things for us to see in these first several verses of our text this morning. First, when you read these verses, you cannot help but get a sense of secrecy in the tone of Jesus Christ. There is a vagueness in his words to the disciples here that I don't think we should ignore. Now we need to understand, preparing for the Passover feast was quite a chore. Some of you busy yourselves before Thanksgiving or Christmas with preparing to cook food for a lot of people. I can almost promise you those preparations might pale in comparison to the preparations needed uh, to prepare the Passover feast. There was a lot of food to prepare, as well as securing a place to host the feast. And we shouldn't forget, part of the preparation of that food meant taking a living lamb into the courtyard of the temple and having it slaughtered by one of the priests. So remember, to celebrate the Passover, Jews from all over the Roman Empire would have made their way to the holy city of Jerusalem. So almost everyone in the city of Jerusalem at that time were out-of-towners who had to make all the same provisions and who needed a place to lodge and needed a place to celebrate the Passover meal or the Passover Seder. And so it had to be on the minds of the disciples all day long as to where they would eat this meal and how they would get everything ready. And it was clearly on the mind of Christ as well. And so Luke tells us that Jesus basically summons Peter and John to him, and he gives them instructions to go and prepare the feast and instructions on how they were to secure the location for this celebration. And it's in these instructions where this sense of great secrecy sort of bubbles to the surface. Because notice, first, Jesus only tells two of his closest disciples to prepare the feast. In other words, he says nothing to the other ten about making these preparations. And I don't think we can uh, merely attribute that to the idea that maybe it only took two people to get all this work done. I think there's something else at play here. I think there's a reason why Jesus only gives these instructions to Peter and John. And the secrecy in Christ's tone is made all the more clear when Jesus in telling Peter and John where they are to celebrate the feast, 
he doesn't really tell them where to celebrate the feast. Instead, he says, you know, you'll meet a, ta- uh, or you'll meet a man carrying a jar of water when you enter into the city, and you're supposed to follow him and enter into the house that he enters into and go to the master of that house and tell them that the teacher needs his guest room to eat of the Passover with his disciples. It's very vague. You see, now, on the one hand, it's specific, specific details, but it's still very vague. You know, Jesus could have just said, go to this house over on this street, and that's where you're going to do it. Why is Jesus being so vague about all of this? Well, it is because Jesus is fully aware of the great conspiracy that is in place already to have him handed over to the authorities. This is what we examined last week in verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 22 this great conspiracy where we saw last week the religious leaders of Israel who were afraid, they longed to arrest and put Jesus to death, but they were afraid to publicly arrest Jesus because they knew that the crowds were with him and the crowds would riot and turn on the religious leaders of Israel. They were afraid to arrest Jesus. We saw them conspire with Judas Iscariot who promised to hand Jesus over to them in a private moment. Luke says he promised to hand Jesus over to them away from the crowds. And we should not forget, too, that last week we also saw that Satan, who possessed Judas Iscariot, was part of this great conspiracy. And so we must believe that Jesus, in this moment, is fully aware of this great conspiracy. He knew Judas was seeking a private moment in which to betray him and have him handed over to the authorities. And if Judas knew where they were to celebrate the Passover, Judas most certainly would have relayed that information to the chief priests and the scribes who would then interrupt the feast and arrest Jesus. And Jesus could not allow that to happen. There were things in which he had to accomplish, even still, in these last few hours, things he had to accomplish in his time with his disciples. Not the least of them being the establishment of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus launches his own counter-conspiracy, secretly arranging for the Passover meal, ensuring that what needs to be accomplished will be accomplished. This is why Jesus' tone in this is so secretive and vague. And this then leads naturally into the second thing I want us to notice from these opening verses. Beloved, pay attention to this and do not miss this. Do not miss the fact that in these, even in these final hours of his earthly life, even with this great conspiracy at work against him, Jesus is 100% in control over the course of his life and ministry. These verses cannot help but bear testimony to the fact that Jesus is indeed the sovereign God in the flesh. Look at some of the things he tells Peter and John. When you enter the city, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Now that is a detail that might be easy for us today to overlook. But we need to know that seeing a man carrying a jar of water was not a common sight in those days. In those days, men carried their water in animal skins. It was only women 
who carried jars of water. Now, don't ask me why. Uh, I have no idea why it was that men carried water in animal skins and women carried it in jars, but it's the historical reality. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. That would have been out of the ordinary for them to see. And then he says, follow him and talk to the master of the house and tell them why you need the guest room. And the master of the house will show you a large furnished upper room and let you prepare the feast in that room. It is, again, remarkable detail, right? It's not only remarkable detail, but it's also strange details. And the sense we're given is that Jesus Christ is directly, sovereignly orchestrating all of these details. Beloved, this is important for us to remember, especially as we progress through chapter 22 and get into chapter 23 of the book of Luke. Because as we progress through these next few chapters, we are going to see terrible things happen to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is going to appear as if He is not in control. As if He's being overpowered. Do not forget, there is never a single solitary moment when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is not in control of what is happening. Everything, beloved, everything was happening according to His sovereign will, according to His eternal plan, so as to accomplish the eternally decreed redemption of His people. And as we said last week, no great conspiracy would ever thwart God's redemptive plan. Jesus is never out of control. He is directly orchestrating all of these events. And this then brings us to the second portion of our text this morning, verses 14 through 18, where we see now now Jesus coming together with his apostles to celebrate the Passover Seder, the Passover meal. Now we must, if we are to understand this moment in time, we must understand the Passover celebration itself. The Passover feast, it really was an Old Testament sacrament. A sacrament given to the people of God on the eve of their own deliverance out of the land of Egypt. Most of you know that story. Now when God was unleashing the ten plagues upon Egypt for holding the Israelites in a state of extremely abusive slavery, just before the tenth plague, the plague where the Lord himself would pass through the land of Egypt and in divine judgment kill all the firstborn of every household, just before that event, God instructed Moses and the Israelites to take a lamb, to kill it, to spread its blood upon the doorpost of the house. And that night, when the destroyer, who is the Lord himself, in fact, I believe it was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, when the destroyer passed through the land and he saw a house with a covering of blood over the doors, he would pass over that house. He would spare that house of divine judgment because in that household, a substitutionary lamb, a sacrificial lamb, died in the place of the firstborn son. The Passover Seder was a feast to celebrate that great event. And I know if you have worshipped with us for any amount of time, you may have heard me say this before, but we must 
understand this reality, the Passover event and the following deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, that whole Exodus event was to the Old Testament believer the great act of salvation and redemption. If you could ask an Old Testament believer, how do you know that your God is a God who saves? That Old Testament believer would no doubt answer, I know because he is the Lord our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Celebrating the Passover, beloved, for the Jews was, in essence, equivalent to a Christian celebrating Resurrection Sunday. It was a celebration of God's great act of redemption. And so, here is Jesus with his apostles, with his disciples, and he is now playing host to this sacramental feast which commemorated God's great act of deliverance. Now, being the host of a Passover meal carries with it some responsibilities. Primarily, it is the job of the host of the feast to lead the order of worship or the liturgy of the Passover And part of that responsibility includes reminding those at the feast what the various foods symbolized. The bitter herbs that were cooked. The host, in this case Jesus Christ, would remind the guests that those bitter herbs represented the bitter suffering of Israel in their state of bondage and slavery. The stewed fruit that they were commanded to eat. Jesus would declare, represented by means of their consistency and their color, the bricks that the Israelites were forced to make with mud and straw in Egypt. The roasted lamb, the host would declare, represented the slaughtered Passover lamb whose blood covered the Israelites, thus sparing them from divine judgment. And of course, the unleavened bread, the bread made without yeast, the host would remind everyone that the unleavened bread was to remind them of how their forefathers left Egypt so quickly that they did not even have time to allow their, their loaves of bread to rise. And as the disciples come to the table and they recline with Jesus, notice what the host of the feast says. Verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And again, in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. These are interesting statements from Jesus Christ as he begins the feast. But, beloved, understand something. Understand what he is doing here. And celebrating this sacrament with his disciples, a sacrament in remembrance of God's great act of redemption in the Old Testament. Jesus is not only recalling to their minds the redemption that God accomplished in the ancient Israelites, he is pointing his disciples in that moment forward in time to an even greater act of redemption and an even greater feast which will come at the end of the age. He is telling his disciples through these statements in that moment, yes, I'm about to suffer and die. And I'm not going to be here again physically to eat of the Passover with you. But understand something, brothers. One day, my kingdom will come in its full power and its full glory and its full consummation. And when that day comes, you and I 
will sit down at an even greater feast, an eternal feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is clearly pointing towards that great final feast that is to come, a feast which is revealed for us much later on in the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. A feast where Christ and all of his disciples, not just those 12 men who were in that room with Jesus on that night, but also you and me and everyone who has repented of all their sin and received Jesus by faith, a feast where we will all sit with Jesus Christ and feast forever. Beloved, understand the Passover. It was always what you might say a forward pointing sacrament, meaning it was not only given to call to mind the great redemptive act of the Exodus event, it was also given to point God's people forward, given to not only remember, but to look forward in anticipation to the coming of another lamb who would be slain, whose blood would provide a covering, another lamb who would be substituted so that God's people could be spared judgment. And now, here is that Lamb, Jesus Christ. And in this particular Passover feast, on this particular night, the Lamb of God is leading His disciples through this Passover liturgy, and He is telling them, listen, I want you to look even further into the future, far, far down the road. Because this feast of the Passover as great as it is, is merely a shadow of the eternal feast that is coming. It is amazing that with so much despair upon the mind of Christ, with the cross looming over his head, weighing him down in grief and sorrow, and if you don't think that's the case, just read a little, uh, a little bit forward in Luke chapter 22 and 23. With so much despair looming over him, It's amazing that here, while enjoying fellowship fellowship and communion with his disciples, he himself is giving comfort and peace. And I think he himself is finding comfort and peace in looking to the final consummation of his kingdom and the everlasting feast that is to come. And as Jesus then begins the Passover liturgy, Luke tells us that he took a cup And he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples. Now understand, this is not the same cup of wine that Jesus gives his disciples in verse 20. And the fact that there's a second cup mentioned in Luke's gospel, for some reason, has caused some problems with a few quote-unquote Bible scholars. I don't know why the fact that Luke mentions two cups is an issue. Because if you know anything about the Passover celebration, the Passover Seder, It involves four separate cups of wine. Each cup coincides with various truths around the nature of God's redemption. So why is this a problem? I really don't know. But in verse 17, Jesus is simply taking the very first cup of the Passover Seder, giving thanks and giving it to his disciples as he should. And as he does so, he continues to lead his disciples through this meal, And I think that things were going just as everyone expected them to go. Jesus was following the order of worship to the Passover. He is following the liturgy to the letter. There were no surprises in this Passover meal 
until they get to the, un the unleavened bread. And when they get to the unleavened bread, Jesus completely breaks the liturgy. He breaks the order of worship altogether. And this leads us into the third and final portion of our text today, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus, in this administration of the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, sacrament, initiates and gives to us a brand new sacrament, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 19. Already uh, we noted that as the host of the Passover meal, it was Jesus' responsibility to remind the disciples what each, what each of the foods represented in the meal. And so when Jesus took the unleavened bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, what would his disciples expect Jesus to say? They would have expected him to say something like, this unleavened bread is to remind us of how quickly our forefathers had to leave the land of Egypt. Instead, what Jesus says is completely unexpected by everybody. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you understand what's happening here? Jesus Christ on the eve of a new, better, greater act of redemption is giving his people a new, better, greater sacrament. The Passover was given to be a commemoration of the great Old Testament act of redemption when God brought his people out of the land of bondage and slavery. Now, Jesus Christ, our Passover, is giving us a new meal to commemorate a greater act of redemption when he himself will deliver his people from bondage and slavery. Not bondage and slavery to a hostile nation, but instead deliverance from the bondage and slavery of sin and death. He is giving us a better meal to commemorate a better redemption. A greater act of redemption which is achieved through the giving of himself as a pure and spotless sacrificial lamb, a lamb whose blood would be spread upon the crossbeam of Calvary, a lamb who would be the final sacrifice, the end of all other sacrifices, a lamb who would be slain so that when the Lord comes in his vengeance and wrath against sinners, he would see the very blood of Christ covering his people and pass over us, sparing us from judgment. The bread, Jesus declares, is his body which is given for you. And he says, do this. He commands, do this, meaning eat this bread in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the pure and spotless Lamb of God. And then, likewise, or as we say, in the same manner, Jesus took the cup, the cup and he once again changes the liturgy. And he declares, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You know, I think we today have no idea the impact that that statement must have made on the disciples on that night. You have to understand, beloved, how bloody the Passover event was. On that very day, in the temple courtyards, 
literally hundreds of thousands of lambs were slaughtered by the priests. The blood literally, I know we use that word literally culturally, and many times it doesn't literally mean literally. I'm saying it literally here. The blood literally flowed from the temple into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Creek was known on that day as the river of blood. It was said that the ground, the very ground of the Kidron Valley was almost permanently stained red from all the blood of the Passover slaughters. And now here is Jesus. And what's he saying? He's saying this cup, this single cup of wine is the new covenant in my blood. And saying this, he was declaring, and I have to believe the disciples would have understood this, he was declaring that there was a new administration of God's covenant of grace with his people about to be established. No longer would animals need to be slaughtered time and time again to deal with sin. No longer would blood flow out of the temple like a great river. No longer would hundreds of thousands of lambs need to be killed in one long bloody afternoon. Instead, now there would be a better covenant, covenant built upon a better sacrifice where only once would blood need to be shed, and that blood being the very blood of Jesus Christ himself shed upon the altar of the cross. And that once spilling of his blood, it would do what none of the other animal sacrifices could do. All those hundreds of thousands of lambs that were killed on that one afternoon, none of them could do what the spilling of the blood of Jesus Christ would do. And that is, none of them could truly wash away our sin and make us white as snow. That blood of the covenant is the blood which poured out of the Lamb of God so that all who come to Him by faith would be made clean forever. Beloved, on the eve of fulfilling what the Passover meal pointed towards, Jesus Christ, our Passover, He Himself gave us a new, a better covenant meal. A meal which, yes, we are to do in remembrance of Him. And understand what that means, brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that when you eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, you just have nice, nostalgic thoughts of Jesus. It means that the meal itself is a commemoration of his death upon the cross. It means that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper stands like a great monument towering over all of redemptive history, bringing to the minds of all of God's people the great and final sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This meal is the memorial service, beloved, of the very atoning death of our Lord and Savior who gave His body for us, who spilled His blood for our sin. It is a visible display of the Gospel. And just like the Passover, this covenant meal, this new sacrament that Jesus gave His disciples and gave us on that night, it not only points us back to the finished work of Christ on the cross, but beloved, just as Jesus pointed his disciples to the great and final feast, this new covenant sacrament, this covenant meal, this commemoration of the death of Jesus Christ, it also points us forward to that very same eternal feast 
that is to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, as we close and then come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, I want to call all of us to remember everything that we have just heard in our text today. Remember, beloved, I think sometimes in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we are so eager to emphasize the fact that this meal is not just a remembrance, but also as a means of grace, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that sometimes we neglect the aspect of remembering. I want to challenge you, beloved, to remember the cross of Jesus Christ and everything that we heard this morning. But I do also want you to keep something else in mind. As we come to the table of the Lord, also remember this. This sacrament of the Lord's Supper It does so much more than commemorate the death of Christ and point us forward to the eternal feast. This meal, beloved, is a means of grace. This meal, when received by faith, and let me say that again, when received by faith, becomes, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, a participation in the body and blood of of Jesus Christ. Do you get what that means? It means nothing less than this. It means that when you come to this sacrament, this covenant meal, and receive the bread and the cup by faith, you do truly receive Christ. Not physically. Christ is physically located right now, embodied at the right hand of the majesty on high but you certainly receive him spiritually as the Holy Spirit lifts us up into the heavenly places and seats us there with Jesus. And just as bread and wine nourish the physical body when we come to this meal and receive it by faith, Jesus Christ, risen and ascended, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, seated there in the same flesh that was given for us, Jesus Christ does indeed feed, and nourish our souls. When we come to this meal by faith, beloved, it truly is communion with Jesus Christ. And it is He who is feeding us. It is He who is nourishing our very souls. It is He who will preserve us, brothers and sisters, until that final day when He returns and consummates His kingdom. And we all sit down together at the eternal feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb.